Welcome to Blood and Wine News. I'm your host, Tyler Kelly. And I'm Brittany Kelly. And our top story today at the top of the hour, October 1st, it is the start of Q3 for many businesses. Leaves are changing orange. I have a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> and it's not yet cold outside because it's Texas. And... That was... We're going to start a news podcast, y'all. <laughs> and we have our family vacation to NOLA coming up in a couple of weeks. Yes, we... Do. Dude, I'm I, I'm excited to like be in the same room as you, just gonna say. I know, I feel like I haven't seen you in I guess it's been like a month, but Yeah, it hadn't been that long. <laughs> but it feels longer. Because <laughs> we've both been does. on trips and blah blah. True. But um no, I am super excited. I went to New Orleans back in January of this year with some friends. Uh, but you've never been. No, so be my first time and I'm so excited that we actually got a room in the Lawlery Mansion. I mean, it's in the oh, basement. Yeah. It's in the basement, but like, I, I hear well, we're not alone. Mine's in the attic, so oh, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. just kidding. I'm excited. We're going to get to walk by it and like be like, "Wow!" for all of thirty seconds. Just kidding. It'll be cooler than that. <laughs> I mean, you you say that there is very much the corner that's like catty corner across from it is probably one of the busier ones in the French Quarter. Totally. Because of all the people stopping and taking pictures of the LaLaurie Mansion. Well, we and our listeners have like more of a connection because we know the story. I mean, true. We and know the so, fake story. so do all those people, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not like the LaLaurie Mansion is a secret. It's not. But we'll also be going in uh, later in October, so it'll be spooky. It'll be closer to Halloween. And we're definitely visiting some voodoo shops and doing like a cemetery voodoo tour. It's going to be so cool. And it's also not going to be 9,000 degrees. Which is wonderful. But anyways, like I said earlier, I'm Tyler. And I'm Brittany. And this is Blood and Wine. We are a true crime podcast, not a daily news podcast, as much as I can dream. You can keep dreaming. Or you can try to get a job at uh, NPR. But, like, I think you have to have, like, a journalism degree, and, like, you don't have that. Well, no, but (laughs) I could just send them this and be like, look. Honestly, fair. (laughs) Look at all the investigation I've done. Definitely. Well, we've talked about it before. It's always at the top of the hour here on Blood and Wine, but be sure to go check out our Patreon. Um, we just finished recording our seventh episode of Bottle Talk, and we also have like 31 murder minis out there. So there is a ton of additional content out there for Patreon supporters. And also, your support is what keeps this podcast going. So we want to be able to give back to you as you give to us and help us out. So hop on over to Patreon, check it out. We've got a lot of different levels, a lot of different benefits. Um, The main one being the extra content. But also, if you go to our top tier, you get to pick an episode topic. And we have a Patreon episode coming up here in a few weeks. And y'all, there's some of the absolute best. Y'all have the best ideas and we absolutely love them. And if you don't have a topic idea, but you have a case idea that we haven't covered, go ahead and tell us and we'll work a topic around it. So you really do get to direct and we love it. It's true. And I will say, I wish we could just hire all of you for your <laughs> ideas when coming up with topics. Yeah, Brittany and I will hash it out, talk for... I mean, a couple days sometimes over what should our next topic be, what should we add to the list upcoming, and we will get topic suggestions from our Patreon supporters, and it's like, oh 
my god, how have we never thought about that? That is incredible. Yeah, like, oh, that's perfect. Yes. But while you are checking out our Patreon, make sure that you are also subscribed to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the things, Podbean, obviously. Obviously. But if you are able to on your podcast platform where you listen to us, make sure to hit that subscribe button and you will get notified every time we release a new episode every Tuesday. Okay, so I'm on, like, the world's longest losing streak in uh, the blood and wine history. So I picked this topic again. I mean, that's (laughs) the world's longest in blood and wine podcast history. Well, that's true. It is true. I'm not lying. I don't know how many it's been. Like seven or something. I don't even want to look back. If it's seven, that's 10% of all of our episodes have been... This streak of me winning, and I'm okay with that. Okay, but you know what? The cases I'm bringing are on fire. They're awesome. Yours just happened to, like, be so intense and more intense than mine. So. Uh, It's true. But I picked a topic this week that is honestly really fitting with the fact that it's October. Um, It's creepy. It's spooky. It's cabin murders. So. Think about it. Like, all the horror films. Dining cabins, camping, being attacked. Like, it's a thing. Cabins are just sketch. Well, it's a thing in the movies, and it's also a thing in the real world, unfortunately. It's true. But um, when you mentioned this topic to me, the first thing that came to my mind is the newest season of American Horror Story. I have not started it, but it's set in, like, 1984. It's very, like punch you in the face 80s themed like you think stranger things is like they're really leaning into the 80s vibes this like 10 levels above that um but it has very much um kind of imagery and stuff from like the 80s slasher films like jason and friday the 13th and all those things i don't know it takes place in a camp i think there's cabins cabin murders and also one of the characters is based off of Richard Ramirez, which, you know, surprise, surprise, he's a well, serial based killer. Based off is. Is, is. And the characters is Richard Ramirez. Yeah. And he's real. But and again, y'all know him. <laughs> it's true. But again, have not watched it, so I I don't even know. It, it could be one that after, like, episode two, they're not in a cabin anymore. I don't know. Well, I know I picked a really great case. I'm sure you did as well. So let's go ahead and dive straight into our wines so then we can get into these creepy cabin murder cases. Absolutely. So Tyler, what wine are you going to be doing in this episode? So today I chose the 2017 Mayomi Pinot Noir from the California Central Coast. I have heard of Mayomi and I have been wanting to try it. Is is it Mayomi or Miomi? It's actually pronounced Mayomi. Okay. I always think I like think it in my head wrong. So Mayomi, I'm going to remember that one. Yeah, so Mayomi actually comes from the Wapo language, which is spoken by the indigenous Wapo people of Northern California, and it means coastal. Oh! So that's what the wine's named after. I love that. But, and this wine was actually a gift. It was a leftover wine from an event and was a gift. So I was like, oh, cool, probably a, you know, I'm thinking it's maybe a 5 to $10 bottle. Apparently it's like twenty. Yeah, it's it's but, up there in, in our so price like, range. Ooh. Although I say that, and I did buy a forty-five dollar bottle of wine in Napa, which I'm like, when am I ever going to drink that? Like, that's 
I don't know, probably on like a Tuesday. Honestly, it's good to have special occasion wine, but it's also great to turn a Tuesday into a special occasion by drinking that special occasion wine. Totally. I'm here for all of it. Same. So the Mayomi Pinot Noir, it's a wine many people have heard of, um, and it's kind of controversial, actually. It's one that you either love it or you hate it, apparently. Oh. I didn't know this, but that was that was um, some of the lists I found. Uh, we're talking about how it's very controversial, but it's also a wine that's, and I hate to sound like a Silicon Valley tech guy, but it's really disruptive in the wine industry. <laughs> it's the Uber of wine. Okay, no. no. <laughs> this wine IPO'd at $40 billion. It didn't. But it was a wine that was developed by Joe Wagner in 2006 when he was working for his dad, Chuck, at the Camus Vineyards. Camus Vineyards is a very Cabernet-centric winery that was founded by Joe's grandfather. And when Joe was 33 years old, he sold Mayomi to Constellation Brands for $315 million. Oh my god! So, again, when I'm like... It's disruptive. It's the Uber. I mean, it kind of is. Yeah. And at that point in July of 2015, Mayomi hadn't even been around for 10 years. And it sold for $315 million. Okay, I'm thinking it's it's a pretty good wine. So, I think so. I mean, it kind of exploded and became hugely popular and is basically the California Pinot Noir. Granted, when I think Pinot Noirs, especially ones from the United States, I always uh, think of the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Oregon is known far and wide for making some incredible Pinot Noirs. Which you said this was Northern California, so how close is this area to Oregon? It actually comes from the Sonoma region, so not super close to Oregon at all. Gotcha. Okay. But this wine in particular, it is a rich garnet color with a ruby edge. It opens to reveal very lifted fruit aromas, bright strawberry and jammy fruit, mocha and vanilla, along with some really nice toasty oak notes. Uh, It has these very expressive boysenberry, blackberry, dark cherry, strawberry, and toasty mocha flavors that lend complexity and depth to the palate. Uh, It has a very well-integrated oak that gives it a lot of structure and depth that you don't really see in a lot of Pinot Noirs. So this one, it is very consistent with supple tannins, a nice silky texture, and a pretty balanced acidity. And it pairs well with just a very wide array of foods, um, particularly tomato-based pasta dishes, Thin crust pizza, grilled lamb, turkey, and this wine specifically is aged six months in 100% French oak barrels. This wine sounds phenomenal, and I'm really jealous we're not splitting it. Yeah, um, I have had it, apparently. I don't remember, because I may have had quite a bit, which (laughs) leads me to believe that it's probably really good. Yes, well, you'll get to try it again tonight. Yes, I will. Also, surprisingly, it doesn't look like it, but it's a screw top. I thought I could see that in the screen, that it was screw top. 
Yeah. I'm surprised. It has a very, like, smooth top, so if your hands are sweaty or, I don't know, oily or something, you might need some help, but it's a screw top. All right, well, screw that open. All right, well, while you serve you... you... While what? (laughs) While you serve yourself your first glass, while you serve your first glass... Let me tell you about my wine. Tell me. So I went back to one of my favorites, a Cabernet Sauvignon, because I feel like I haven't done one in a while, and I thought it was time. This is the 2017 Caretaker Wines Cabernet Sauvignon from Paso Robles, California. So we both have California wines. Yes, we do. And this is one that I got at Trader Joe's. It's $10, and it is a really good wine for a low price point. Um, It's a dark ruby color with a garnet edge, which I think you said yours was the exact opposite. It was a garnet with a ruby edge. So that's really interesting that um, when you said that, I was like, oh, okay. Um, The aromas are very complex. There's sandalwood, cassis, black cherry, dark chocolate, and roasted coffee. And then once you drink it, on the palate, it's very rich and it coats your mouth with a long finish of concentrated fruit, black tea, leather, licorice, and spice box. So this literally is a cab to the tea. Everything about this is a cab. And the texture, it's also very broad. It's even, and it finishes with a really fine tannin structure, so very smooth. Mm -hmm. Um, The bottle is really cool. I keep trying to figure out what's happening, because it's like this cloud that has hands, and it's holding a pot with flowers in it. I don't really know what's going on there. There's there's just a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there, but it's pretty. Yeah, two things I want to say. First off, I turned my bottle around and realize it says exactly where it comes from, and it's kind of broken down. It's 50% Monterey County, 26% Santa Barbara County, and 18% Sonoma County are where these Pinot Noir grapes are from in mine. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So, second off, when you said coffee, it instantly gave me horror flashbacks to drinking Apothic Brew, (laughs) which I think we did an episode like two or three of the podcast. I think so. And it's a wine that's like, it was like half coffee, half wine, something like that. No, Like wine with coffee in it. (laughs) That was one of those. It was not a half and half. That sounds horrible. (laughs) It does. But that was back when um, we wanted to be very nice. We were just starting out the podcast. So we were like... Mmm, it's it's a dessert wine. It's definitely... I did not care for it. I know a lot of people really like it. Um, I've heard great things, read great reviews. Y'all, I... No. It was not, for not me. wine that we would ever drink and buy again. Not for us. But Not for us. I will say, there... And maybe it's because I... Snooty old me is... I guess, a traditionalist when it comes to wine, because there has to be a market. I mean, there are people out there that love the, like, chocolate milk wines or the the ones you see at the grocery store mm-hmm. that you're like, what? <laughs> I mean, there are people that love those because uh, they sell them. Yeah. Um, 
Listeners, if any of y'all really enjoy uh, some of those different kinds of wines, let us know. Um, Because, you know, like we always say, the most important thing about drinking wine is that you're drinking something you enjoy. And if other people shit all over it and tell you that that's gross, well, they're not the ones drinking it. Not their wine. Not their choice. But, yes, I don't think the wine you're drinking now is going to be like Apothic Brew. No, no. That was just what I thought when I when you said coffee. <laughs> so a little bit about um, the details of this wine before I open it up. The soil that these grapes are grown in is shale, limestone, Sorrento loam, and sandy loam. Don't really know what loam soil is, but L-O-A-M. And the growing season oh. is from late February to mid-October. So I actually do know loamy soil is like really um, like easier to plant in and really good for growing things. And I know that because uh, any of my 90s kids out there in Pokemon, when you had to plant berries into trees, you had to find that loamy soil. Oh my god, you actually learned something from Pokemon. Um, Yes. (laughs) So it's grown in small lot fermentations, and then it's aged seven months on 25% new French and American oak. So literally, like I said, it's a cab to the T. And this one is a regular cork. I know I haven't done one of these in a while, but I'm going to get into this one and pour my glass so we can taste them. Ooh. Oh, it looks like such a beautiful cab. That is a very ruby colored, yeah. Yeah, I can see through it a bit in the light. Mine is, I don't know, I guess more garnet. This one's definitely a medium to full bodied. I think it's right in between the two. Wow. Oh my gosh. I smell blackberry and wood. That like sandalwood that it said. It's so there. I definitely smell the fruit. I also get some of the mocha and vanilla, like those more oaky notes. And I mean, mine's aged in French oak, so it makes sense. But really mine smells more like a cab than a typical Pinot Noir. It sounded a lot like a cab when you were describing it. Um, I'm also definitely picking up on these chocolate notes when I smell it. Oh my god. All right, well. Chocolate and wood? I'm like really excited. It's like I dropped my candy bar in some uh, wood chips and picked it back up and just took a bite. I mean, not something that I would describe as appetizing, but you do you. Well, without further ado, because I want to drink this whole bottle right now, I say let's cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers. I cheersed way too hard and thought I broke my glass. <laughs> That was a major cheers there, dude. (laughs) All right. Let's give these a taste. Cherries and mmm, delicious. This one is um, very fruity. Okay, you go first, though. So mine's very oaky, but it has a lot of those complex flavors that you would expect from something like a cab. And one of the reasons that I like Pinot Noir, but it's not one of my go-to, is... I feel like oftentimes the lighter wine lends itself to a little bit flatter flavors or a quicker finish and you don't get to really experience the full breadth of the wine. This one is very different and unlike any Pinot Noir I've ever had, 
And I think that's kind of really the takeaway on why some people love it and some people hate it. Because if you're going into this expecting something like a Marquess Pinot Noir, it's very different. And it does not taste like an Oregon Pinot Noir. But if you're going into this not knowing what to expect, if you're a red wine drinker, if you're a cab drinker like myself, this might be the best Pinot Noir I've ever had. Really? Okay, now I really need to go get a bottle of this and try it then. You absolutely (laughs) do. I think you would love this because you feel the same way about Pinot Noirs as I do. Yeah. You enjoy them, but they're not your favorite. Exactly. This one will be your new favorite. I'm going to go get one. You should also go get one of these Caretaker Wines Cabernet Sauvignon. Again, 10 bucks at Trader Joe's. The taste is fuller than the color is. It's a nice long finish. You absolutely get those spicy notes mixed in with the fruit. And it's phenomenal. I'm getting subtle hints of leather, but more so the fruitiness and the spices. This is a delicious cab. Like I said when I read the description, it's a cab to the T. It's a true cab. It's very similar to um, a lot of the other cabs around this price range, but I do think it is a little bit more complex. But again, this is a classic cab. Highly recommend it. Go get yourself a bottle. I absolutely will. That sounds like an amazing cab. I've been looking at it at Trader Joe's for months. Like, I've been wanting to pick this one for the podcast for so long, and today just was finally the day where I was like, yes, today feels like the right day. And I picked it. Okay. (laughs) Well. Okay. We have our wine. We have our topic. I'm going to jump into my case. Let's do it. How are you going to scare me with your cabin murder? Oh, I went for it. And when you said cabin murder, the only thing I could think of were the Keddie cabin murders. I knew it. I almost picked this one, but I have another one. I you did. I didn't. I have one I'm really excited about. Okay. So tell me about the Keddie cabin murders. So first off, the Keddie cabin murders to me are... The scariest things I can think of to ever happen in a cabin or a cabin-like building. So, if y'all haven't heard of the Keddy Cabin Murders, buckle up, because it is a ride. The sources I used, an article from People Magazine called Five Things to Know About the Keddy Cabin Murders and the New Hunt for the Killers by Jeff Truesdell. An article from All That's Interesting called Inside the Keddy Murders, The Confounding Quadruple Homicide at Cabin 28 by Ted Kammerer. An article from Oxygen called The 1980s Cold Case of the Keddy Cabin Murders is Heating Up by Matt Murrow. And the Wikipedia article titled Keddy Murders. So, if the title of those articles uh, didn't give you a little hint... Uh, this gonna be fucked up. So in the fall of 1980, Glenna Susan Sharp, who was known to friends and everyone as Sue, left her home in Connecticut along with her five kids after separating from her husband, James Sharp, and she decided to relocate to Northern California. Her brother lived there at the time, so it only seemed natural where that's where she had family, that's where she'd take the kids. Once she got to California, she began renting a cabin at the Keddy Resort in the rural Sierra Nevada community of Keddy, and this was cabin number 28. It was there in that cabin that she lived with her 15-year-old son, John, her 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 
her 12-year-old daughter, Tina, and her two young sons, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was 5. On April 11th of 1981, so about six to nine months after moving to the area, at about 1.30 p.m., Sue and Sheila drove from Ketty to pick up John and his friend Dana Hall Wingate from the Ganser Park in Quincy, California, and brought them back to Ketty, which was only about five miles away. A couple hours later, John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, where they had planned to visit a couple other friends. Around this time, they were in the downtown area, and a local woman picked him up and gave him a ride down the road to another friend's home. So they're just being two teenagers out on the town in the 80s, hanging out, doing their thing. Yeah. Later in the night, the two of them were seen attending a party at Oakland Camp in Quincy. So they spent a lot of time there. That same evening back in Ketty, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived just next door in the cabin over, while Sue stayed home with Rick, Greg, and their young friend, Justin Smart. So Sheila left to go to the neighbor's cabin about 8 p.m. and left her mom alone with the young kids. And Tina, who'd been watching TV at the Seabolt, so at the neighbor's cabin, returned home at about 9.30 after Sheila had gotten there to spend the night. So they kind of switched off. That night seemed pretty normal. Um, John and Dana came back to the cabin um, at some point during the night to sleep. Um, And Sheila just spent the night at the neighbor's. Like, it was pretty much a normal night, all, all things considered. But the next morning, on April 12th, Sheila goes home to cabin 28, and when she opens the door, she sees just this ghastly nightmare scene. Inside were the bodies of her mother, her brother John, and his friend Dana. All three of them had been bound by medical and electric tape, and had either been viciously stabbed, strangled, or bludgeoned. And Sheila's sister Tina was nowhere to be found. I cannot even imagine coming home from a slumber party or just staying over at a friend's and opening the door and this is what you see. It's just, there is no part of me that can comprehend this scenario. No. And to make things even worse, the bedroom where Rick and Greg slept, the two young boys, as well as their friend, is right there. Thankfully, all three of them were unharmed and were still asleep. When Sheila got there, they had slept through all of this. And that's astonishing that they slept through it. I mean, these are, this is a horrifying and violent murder. To, that, to me, that's one of the most surprising things about this case, is how these three kids could have slept through all of it. Yeah. So Sheila gets home and sees this, and she runs back to the neighbor's house. She has her friend's dad go over to retrieve the three boys and he gets he goes to the bedroom window and gets them out there so they don't have to walk through the living room and see their mother their brother and his friend all brutally murdered that was some really good thinking on his part just like again this quick thinking quick responding like get the kids out but make sure they don't see what happened absolutely their minds are too young to try to comprehend something like this Oh, yeah. I mean, it would have been, I don't even think scarring goes deep enough kind of thing. Agreed. So the scene in the house, there is blood 
everywhere. It's on the walls, it's on the bottom of the victim's shoes, it's on Sue's bare feet, and all over the bedding in Tina's room. It's all over the furniture, the ceiling, the doors, and the back steps. I mean, there's blood everywhere. And the blood spatter evidence from the house showed that Sue, John, and Dana had all been murdered there in the living room. And how much blood and how where it was suggested that the three of them had been moved and rearranged after their murders. So 15-year-old John, he was the closest to the front door. He was lying face up. His hands were covered in blood and bound in medical tape. And his throat had been slit. His friend Dana is laying on the floor next to him on his stomach. And his head was badly damaged and bashed in with a blunt object. And he was laying partially on a pillow. He'd also been manually strangled, so strangled with bare hands. His ankles were tied with electrical wire, and it was also wound around John's ankles, so the two of them were, like, kind of tied together. Sheila's mom had been partially covered with a blanket, but not in a way that hid any of her injuries. Oh, jeez. She was laying on her side, and she was naked from the waist down. She'd been gagged with a bandana and her own underwear that had been taped with medical tape around her head. And she had injuries that showed she put up a fight. And there was a struggle. She even had an imprint of the butt of a pellet gun on the side of her head. Jeez. And like her son, her throat had been cut. So these three murders, they were vicious. There were two bloody knives and a hammer that was found nearby, and one of the knives, which was a steak knife that was used in the murders, had been bent in half with how much force was used, like stabbing. Jeez. This metal knife bent in half. That is a lot of force. All of the victims had severe blunt force trauma from the hammer or hammers, and all of them had been stabbed multiple times. And at first, this scene was so vicious and there was so much carnage that investigators didn't realize Tina was missing. They were focused on the blood and the all of this. Right. When they eventually realized that Tina was missing, the FBI was called. I'm glad they called them so quickly. Because yeah. with how vicious and violent this scene is, it's like... Oh, shit. Okay. If Tina's still alive, it's not for long. Well, spoiler alert, that's about the last time you're going to be happy with the investigation. Okay. Well, I appreciate the prep. That sucks. So Doug Thomas, who was the sheriff at the time of these murders, and his deputy lieutenant, Don Stoy, weren't able to first find any kind of motive or reason for these murders. They just seemed random. The home didn't show any kind of forced entry, but detectives did find some unidentified fingerprints on a handrail on the back stairs. The telephone had been left off the hook, and all of the lights had been shut off, and the curtains had been closed. It looked like it was something that was done by people who knew what they were doing, or at least knew how to hide what they're doing. At least made a plan. Yeah. This definitely doesn't seem like a random, you know, any kind of robbery or something like that. Right. But also, again, one of the th confusing things about this case 
is the three boys, just one room over, didn't wake up. They were completely unaware of this. And a neighboring cabin, not the one that Sheila was staying in, but another neighboring one, a woman and her boyfriend in that one had been woken up at about 1.30 a.m. by the sound of muffled screams. But they weren't really able to figure out where it was coming from, so they went up, went back to bed. Not really what you should do if you hear muffled screams in the middle of the night. Just saying. Maybe don't just go back to bed. But, you know, that does beg the question, if people in a completely other house woke up from this, how did all three of the boys sleep through it? I don't even know how that is possible. So, again, they're questioning the boys and like, you know, how? And all three of them were saying, we slept through it. But eventually, Ricky and Greg's friend, Justin Smart, would say that he did see Sue with two men in the house that night. One of these men had a mustache and long hair, and the other was pretty clean-shaven with short hair, but they both had glasses. And one of these men was holding a hammer. He then tells them how, at that moment, John and Dana walked into the house, and everyone started arguing with these men. And it wound up resulting in a pretty violent fight. Tina was allegedly then taken out the cabin's back door by one of the men. One of the things about this, though, that confuses me, and I couldn't really understand it through the research I was doing, is, first off, if this is what Justin saw, did he just go back to bed? And second, and probably more important, is what did Justin see? You know, how much of this did he see? Did he see a verbal argument that, you know, maybe got pansy? You know, there were maybe fists thrown around and then everyone went outside and he went to bed? Or is he saying that he actually was witness to these brutal, brutal murders and then just went to bed? Right. And if so, why and how? To me, it sounds like he saw the beginning of this fight, and maybe in his own life, this was something that he had seen previously. Like, maybe he had seen his parents have an argument, and so it was just to him something adults do, and so he just went back to bed because it is what it is. Because I have a hard time, like you, believing that he could see the violent murders taking place and go back to sleep. However, the other part of that. If he did see the brutal murders taking place and he went back and was hiding under the covers, maybe he was just so terrified he did fall back asleep. Maybe. There's also another theory that kind of leads into the first suspect of why Justin may have seen what he saw and didn't really say anything. And that could be because one of the lead suspects was Justin's dad, who was also the Sharps' neighbor, Martin Smart, and Martin's house guest, John Bo Bodebay, who was an ex-convict who had previously had connections to organized crime in the area and in Chicago. And one of the things that really drew suspicion to the two of them is earlier in the night before the murders, the two of them had been seen wearing suits and ties and behaving very oddly at the bar. And from what I've read and looked into about Ketty, it's not the kind of place where you wear a suit and tie to the bar. Right. They're not going out for bougie tapas and fancy things. I mean, it's a 
It's a bar bar. You go for drinks and friends and not a place you'd really dress up, dress up. I mean, Keddie's in Northern California in the wilderness. I mean, they're living in cabins. It's definitely more of a place you would expect to see someone in jeans and flannel. Exactly. And that's what I'm picturing because even the name Keddie, that does not sound fancy. It just sounds like a woodsy cabin town. Yeah. So these two men had recently met at a VA hospital. Marty had previously served in Vietnam and had been diagnosed with PTSD. Bo also showed signs of PTSD from the war and had attempted suicide previously. So when the two of them got out of the hospital, Marty was like, Hey, Bo, you're my friend. You should come stay with me and my wife in our cabin. And one of the connections between these two families, other than them being neighbors living near each other, is that Sue Sharp was friends with Marty's wife. And Sue had been telling his wife that she should leave him because he was abusive to her. So you were saying earlier about maybe the violence and something is something Justin was used to. Yeah. He, he was. I mean, he saw violence often in his home life. And especially if one of these suspects was his dad and he sees his dad being violent, you know, maybe he sees that and doesn't think anything of it, really. Or maybe he did see something, and he did see a lot, and his dad terrified the shit out of him. So he's not going to say anything. Yep. At first. I lean more towards that as the probability. Yeah. Marty Smart would later tell police that he did have a hammer that matched the one that police had discovered, but he also said that Shortly before these murders, his hammer had gone missing. Later in the year, a knife was found in a trash can at the Keddie General Store, and authorities believed it to be linked to the crimes, and believed it to be linked to Marty. So, back to Tina. No one knows where she is. There were seven people staying in this house. Three were murdered, three were asleep unharmed, and one of them, Tina's just gone. And because she was believed to have been abducted at the crime scene, her disappearance was initially looked at by the FBI that was called in. Right. But by April 29th, the FBI had backed off because they said the Justice Department was doing an adequate job and that made their presence unnecessary. Which, to me, in a triple homicide that also now involves a missing and or kidnapped child, an adequate job is... Not a good enough one. That's not good enough. I wouldn't even say an amazing job is a good enough one in this case. Because for all you know, that adequate job is going to take three more hours to find her. And she's going to be murdered in that time. No, an adequate... Adequate isn't good for anything. An adequate fast food meal isn't even that exciting. But an adequate kidnapping investigation attached to a triple homicide? No. So, in their adequate search, a grid pattern search of the area covered a five-mile radius around the cabin by police with dogs, but they didn't find anything. They found no trace of Tina. On April 22nd, 1984, three years and 11 days after the murders and after Tina's disappearance, a bottle collector was out oh God. collecting bottles looking for things. 
and he found a portion of a human skull and part of the mandible, the jawbone, at Camp 18 near Feather Falls in nearby Butte County. This is about a hundred miles away from Ketty. Shortly after announcing this discovery, the Butte County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous call. At this point, they, they found a piece of a human skull and human jawbone, but that's all they know so far. Right. Remember, this is the 80s. This is, you know, they're not really doing DNA tests and stuff yet. But they get this call, and the caller says, Hello, I was watching the news, and they were talking about the skull they found at Feather Falls, and they asked for any help. The dispatcher says, uh, uh-huh, yeah. And the caller says, And I was just wondering if they thought of the murder up in Ketty in the Plumas County a couple years ago. Uh, the one where a 12-year-old girl was never found, and then hung up. Um, that sounds more than just a, hey, I had an idea. I had a thought. Oh, absolutely. It sounds very much like toying. Yeah. This call was not documented in the case. What? They didn't really, they didn't really keep their, keep their notes from it. So did they just think it was someone just being a dick? Oh, no, they fully believed it. Yeah, they took There's no just notes. a level of incompetence. That is mind-blowing So in this case. do these people not know the, if it's not in writing, it can't be proven that it actually happened? Well, the thing is, I'm not so sure that they didn't know exactly that. The remains were confirmed by a forensic pathologist to be those of Tina Sharp no, in June of 84. I was hoping it was not her. A hundred miles away? It was her. A hundred miles away, and three years later. Near her remains, detectives also found a child's blanket, a blue jacket, and a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. Oh my god, the tape dispenser? They just threw it with Tina. I hate these killers. I hate them. So, meanwhile, this time, it's three years after the murders, Sheriff Thomas resigned from the investigation three months in. And he took a job with the Sacramento Department of Justice. And his handling of the case is, at the best of times, disastrous. At the worst of times, completely corrupt. So in 2016, Sheila Sharp told CBS Sacramento, I was told the suspects were told to get out of town. So to me, that means it was covered up. Yeah. So they knew the suspects were, and they warned them ahead of time to get out of town. That's exactly what that sounds like. Are you kidding me? Warning them to get out of town? So in in 2013, 30 years, more than 30 years after the murders, the tape of this anonymous tip of the call that came in, that no notes were taken of, the tape of it was found. And it was sealed in the case files. So they had it. And they knew they had it. But they hid it. Why? Because some there's some corrupt bullshit going on in this shit. Clearly. So the case was reopened in 2013. And the Plumas County Sheriff's Department went into all the evidence. It's just relook everything over. And they found the fucking tape. And the two investigators that are really working on this now is Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg, who are two of my favorite fucking people. 
And I think there might be this propensity for small town sheriffs. And side note, this could be me completely stereotyping. But this idea that, you know, you kind of have this respect and this regarding for the past law enforcement offers and you're, you're not going to shake things up especially with something like corruption charges right it's a big deal even if it's and even if it's something that's kind of well known being a law enforcement officer and saying hey these past law enforcement officers were corrupt and did these corrupt things that's a big fucking deal it is but these two not afraid of saying that good They're like that's what the evidence is showing I love to hear that because you're absolutely right. A lot of the times, and again, this is me totally making an assumption. I'm not a cop and I don't personally know someone who is. I know people who work with law enforcement. But I feel like when an officer finds out that a previous officer had done things that were corrupt, they feel it's either, you know, just not worth bringing up. Like maybe this person has been like, honored, etc. Maybe they've passed away and they don't want to disgrace their life. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of reasons and thoughts that go into not bringing this forward. But at the end of the day, I agree with what what these two did. Because if the evidence shows you something, you need to speak up. And we talk so many times about speaking up and speaking out when you see something that's not right. And it it just breaks my heart that I do feel like corruption in law enforcement is rampant. And that, and not, it's one of those things where I think some people's reasoning for not bringing forward is totally horrible. But I think some people's reasonings for not bringing forward is a little bit understandable. It doesn't mean it's right. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you can look at it from, you know, an outside perspective and be like, okay, I see why you you didn't want to, but... That doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think sometimes that idea, the image of brothers and sisters in arms together can pervade. And it can really lead to people not speaking out when they should. Right. And while both of us have said that we're making generalizations and stuff, this is something we see in a lot of our cases. We see it all too often. Yeah. But, the you know, the two of us have never interviewed... Um, officers about corruption and their thoughts and everything. Right. So in in that way, it is generalizations. But regardless, the two of them, Sheriff Hagwood and Mike Gamberg, they're not backing down. Good. In 2016, Gamberg also found a hammer in a dried up pond in Ketty (gasps) that is believed to be connected and to be one of these missing weapons. Absolutely. That, I mean, of course, it could just be some other hammer, but... Seems like there could be a connection. And a lot of these updates I'm going into now are unfortunately quite recent for a case that happened so long ago. It came to light that Marilyn Smart, so Marty's wife, Justin's mom, Sue's friend, Marilyn, had left her husband, Marty, the day of the murder discovery. So just a few hours after the murders happened. And after she left him... She gave the county sheriff's department a handwritten letter that he gave to her. And the letter said, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through? Great. What else do you want? So she literally got a letter 
from her husband that she just left saying, basically, I straight up murdered four people for you and you're leaving me. When did she turn that in? Or was that found in the case file? She gave that to the sheriff's department not long after the murders, but they didn't treat it as a confession. And they didn't follow up on it. With how? She literally gives them a handwritten letter that's like, I murdered these people. And they're like, hmm, I wonder who could have murdered these people. This is so frustrating because there are so many times when I feel like very small pieces of not real evidence are used as a confession. And this one has a lot more credence to actually be considered a type of confession or at least enough to bring him fucking in. And Marilyn said that she thought her husband and his friend Bo had done this, that they were responsible. But the sheriff, Doug Thomas, he said no, uh, the Marty had passed a polygraph test. Oh, that doesn't matter. We know that doesn't matter. Not only does that not matter, but it also came out that Marty was very good friends with the sheriff. Oh, okay. Well... It's one of those. It's some Under the Dome by Stephen King bullshit. This case is making me more and more frustrated the further you go along. It's one of those where I feel like we know who did it, but they're never going to be convicted of it, so it's never going to be solved. I'm like, that's where my head's at right now. Oh, just get ready to get so much more frustrated. Are you kidding me? I don't even know how. So in 2016, Mike Gamberg, who's the special investigator now working on the case, met with a counselor at the Reno Veterans Administration. And this therapist told him anonymously that in May of 1981, so the month after the murders, Martin Smart confessed to murdering Sue and Tina. He said to this therapist, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. And this therapist, which, again, I don't know what the uh, laws were in the 80s around, like, doctor-patient confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And I know nowadays it depends on the state. It depends on what you confess to and things like that. But this therapist told the DOJ, told the Department of Justice, like, what he had confessed to. And they just dismissed it as hearsay. No, that's literally twice now that Marty's confessed. Twice. Yeah. So, Bo died in 1988, and Marty Smart died in 2006. Cool. That's not fair. Neither of them were ever charged in any of this. No. And the most widely accepted theory of the time is that there was some kind of love triangle going on between Martin, Marilyn, and Sue. Oh, this is different news. Yeah. And I I was reading this as the most widely accepted theory. And honestly, you know, I'm going to go through it. And there are a couple things that point to it that make sense. But to me, this theory doesn't sound as likely as the theory of Marilyn and Sue are friends. Sue tells Marilyn, you need to leave him. He's abusive. And he's pissed. Marty finds out and is like, Sue's trying to get you to to leave me. You're not going to leave me. And then murders her. To me, from the evidence I've found, that seems like the most likely case. But 
One of the most widely accepted theories is this love triangle. So there's this idea that Marty and Sue were having an affair while Sue is telling Marilyn to leave her husband. So she's kind of playing both sides. She's like, Marilyn, leave him. He's abusive. Also sleeping with Marty. Supposedly, yeah. And apparently, according to this theory, when Marty found out about this, he got his friend Bo, who, you know, had previously had connections with the mob, had just started living with him to go over and murder Sue. So she wouldn't be an issue anymore. This would account for why Marilyn left her husband on the day of the murder discovery. And it would also explain why Justin Smart and the boys in the other room weren't harmed. Why none of them were injured. And also it gives a little more context to this handwritten note that he gave Marilyn. So, you know, he's saying he, he paid the price by murdering these people for her love kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she leaves him. Again, I still think the likely idea that he found out that his wife's best friend is trying to get her to leave. I don't understand why the like, ooh, and they were sleeping together has to be a part of it. But okay. Like, to me, it just sounds kind of sexist. It's like, ah, there must be sex involved for a murder. I agree. And I'm like, mm, or like women sticking together and helping women. Like, yeah, it doesn't always have to have a dick involved. Agreed. On the other hand, though, some investigators, uh, when looking at the case when it reopened in 2013, see it as involved in a much bigger plot. So, Gamberg says that the Department of Justice and the Sheriff's Department at the time covered it up, is what it's looking like. You know, he straight up is like, "Mm, this looks like it was a cover-up. And he alleges that Bo and Marty were not just doing this out of some kind of passion, but that it was part of a larger drug smuggling scheme that involved the local and federal government in the area. Oh my god. So, Marty was a known drug dealer. That was a thing. Bo was connected to these Chicago crime syndicates that had financial interests in drug distribution. He's suddenly in the area. There's there's a lot of pieces. A lot of this would explain why, not only at the time is the sheriff's office pretty blatantly covering it up, but so is the local Department of Justice. They're kicking the FBI out of there. Yeah. They are getting confessions from these therapists, not doing a damn thing about it. Calling it hearsay. They're getting these notes, putting it in a file, storing it away. A call about the body, not saying anything about it. Like, there's a lot of shit going on that's like, mm, as crazy and kind of conspiracy theory as this sounds, it doesn't sound that crazy, really. No, it doesn't. There have definitely been more outlandish things happen. Yes. So both Gambert and Hagwood believe that even though Marty and Bo are dead, there are still persons of interest out there who are alive and either took part in these murders or helped out afterwards. Hagwood told the Sacramento Bee, It's my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime the disposal of the evidence, and the abduction of the little girl. We're convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles who are still alive. Which makes sense. There's a lot of pieces that I don't think two people could have been doing it all. 
there's so much that happened and and so many victims and the fact that three children were in the room next door and still asleep like almost there could have been someone standing in the doorway and was like lay down yeah like maybe they didn't participate in the murders but they made sure the three kids didn't go out like maybe i don't know they were like oh we won't kill kids under the age of this I don't fucking know. Yeah. Under the age of 15. Sure. For some fucking reason. Or if it was Marty, it was like, no, my son's in there, so leave all them alone. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot that happened. on the bright side, if you can call it that, Sheila Sharp, who is still alive today, told the Sacramento Bee that I had actually put it in my mind that I'll probably go to my grave. This will never be solved. And then when all this evidence, when all of this started coming out, it brought up the hope again. You know, she feels like, finally, after all this time, after we're closing in on almost 40 years now, that there's actually effort being put into the murder of her mom and her siblings and her brother's friend. They're finally... There's officers that aren't corrupt on it. There's people who aren't doing their best to hide evidence and hide information. Even if these two people who are now dead, are found out to have been the killers, there's actually people doing the work and looking to prove it. Just looking to find justice. Absolutely. And, I mean, it would be a bit of a bittersweet ending if it was found out to be two people who were deceased, but the sweet part would be that it's solved and that there's an answer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but again, with the possibility of there being more people, there could still be people alive who could be brought to justice for this crime. Yeah, absolutely. So, that is the case. The Keddie Cabin murders. Makes me really not want to rent a cabin in Northern California. I mean, Northern California is gorgeous, but it is also the location of one of the most terrifying nights of my life, personally, when I moved to Seattle. Obviously, as this follows me telling the story of the Keddie Cabin murders, it very much does not compare to that at all. But my only experience with Northern California is getting lost in the Redwood Forest on Highway 101 in pitch black. It's the curviest thing ever. Literally, your headlights are always facing a Redwood tree in front of you. There's locals speeding around you going 50 miles an hour. You're going 20. It feels too fast as it is. And it takes six hours. So That's pretty terrifying. I also recently stayed in a cabin in California, so I'm a little, like, glad I hadn't thought about this case before I did that. So, okay. Fair. Well, um, that was my case. Tell me about your cabin murder. Okay. The case I picked is about the bloody benders. Don't worry. I'll explain. <laughs> okay, because I'm very confused and very intrigued. Yes. So the sources I used, the first one actually has a story with it. So okay. at work, one of my coworkers has a true crime page a day calendar. And so each day has a different fact or a quote or something. But during the week, like Monday through Friday, they do one story and do a different part on each day. Oh. So earlier this week, she rips off last week's thing because I was gone and she hands it to me and she goes, you need to read this. And so I read through it and it's about the bloody benders. And I was like, holy shit, I'm, I'm doing this on the podcast. And also, just so you guys know, there is a 2020 calendar that's available. I plan to buy it. It is 
a year of true crime page a day calendar. 2019 is the one I used. 2020 is the one available now. Twisted Killers, Incredible Survivors, Unsolved Mysteries. You can find it on Amazon. I highly recommend it. It's one of those page a day like tearaway calendars. I'm literally going to get on Amazon right it, now and look at like it. It's like $14 and I really want to be like, oh my god, that's I want to be like, hey mama, you know what would be a perfect stocking stuffer? <gasps> oh my god, yes. <laughs> I'm not going to look at it on Amazon. I want it in my stocking. So that was how I was first introduced to this case. So then I did some further research and I found an article from All That's Interesting, How the Bloody Benders Made Murder the Family Business by Wyatt Red, an article from Mental Floss. The Bloody Benders, America's First Serial Killer Family by Miss Selenia, which, to be completely honest, if that is this person's, like, written name, I'm obsessed with it, because it's literally Miss Selenia. Miss Selenia. Oh. <laughs> it's my favorite thing okay. ever. A Ranker article, Horrifying Details About the Bloody Benders, A Serial Killing Spiritualist Family by Kat McElfee. And then Crime Reads, The Bloody Benders, America's First Family of Serial Killers by Niall Capello. And lastly, from the HistoryChannel.com, History, the Louisiana Purchase. So back in 1803, a little bit of a history lesson here. (laughs) God, yours is, oh, this is, uh, this might be the oldest case we've done. Because Vera Renzi was like the late 1800s, I think. She was like the 1920s. Oh, I th- okay, so I think this, I mean, if 1803 or, like, early 1800s is when yours happens, then this is, I think, our oldest case we've ever done. Well, it doesn't happen in 1803. Let me just get into it, okay? Okay, well, maybe, yeah, just get into it. All we'll right, see. but you know what did happen in 1803? The Louisiana Purchase. Exactly. So, the Louisiana Purchase was completed, and this is when the United States purchased 828,000 square miles of territory from France for $15 million, which was a big fucking deal. Like, it was a big deal, and it was a big deal financially. $15 million back in 1803 is $300 million today. Think about things that are bought for $300 million, like you were saying, uh, the winery, your winery, three fifteen. This was for something that literally doubled the size of the country. So, great bargain. Yeah, honestly, that's what I'm thinking, because, like, the new stadium for the Minnesota Vikings in Minneapolis, $1.1 billion. So, you could get four Louisiana purchases. Oh, my God. Or, or one of NFL stadium. Exactly. So, that um, is actually, honestly, the best way to put this in perspective, because you hear $15 million, and that sounds like a lot of money, because it is. Or even $300 million. That's a shit ton of money. But when you think about how expensive things are today, and for what the Louisiana Purchase was, it's like literally pennies on the dollar. I mean, it it literally is like a third of the today, like, contiguous U.S. of the lower 48. Yes. And also, here's a fun fact for you. The Louisiana Purchase basically rewrote the rules of the federal government Because they didn't have laws about, like, okay, can we actually do this? Like, can the federal government, do we have enough power to buy and double our country? So, fun thing. At that time, they did. I knew you were going to nerd out a little bit at the beginning of this, by the way. 
Listen, <laughs> uh, Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea and all that is my shit. I know it is. Literally growing up, it's all you ever talked about, I feel. That and Titanic. Honestly, <laughs> God, I was a weird fucking kid. We all were. I mean, kids in general are weird, but... You were just their, like, bright, yeah. shining leader. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was absolutely a follower, oh. but I was a weird follower. I was the extra weird follower. Oh my god, I was the jester, dancing along the parade. Okay, there you go. You do you. So, the United States purchased the the Louisiana Purchase, and the land for the most part was completely empty. And to fix this problem, the government began offering plots of land to anyone who's willing to move out and farm it. They were basically like, people... We just bought this for you. Will you please use it? Will you please take advantage of this present we just gave you? Oh, God. What if we did that today? What if they were just like, if you move to Utah, we'll give you land. I'd be like, I love Utah. I am a Salt Lake City ho. I mean, Here is my land. To be honest, I think Utah is a lot more beautiful than people give it credit for. I mean, Utah's gorgeous, but it's gorgeous in the mountains. In the desert, it's the surface of the Basically. moon. Basically. So in 1862, there was the Homestead Act, and this is what happened after the Civil War, and the Osage Indians were moved from their home in Lebec County to Oklahoma in order to make the Kansas Territory available to European settlers. So this is a continuation uh, to me of the Trail of Tears, and yeah. which is, you know, how Oklahoma was essentially founded before the land run and the Sooners and all the stuff that we hold near and dear to our hearts. The Sooner stuff, definitely not the Trail of Tears part. Okay, I was like, mm. No, um, I only say that because the Sooners is the college I went to, even though it meant it's the people that stole land. Like, trust me, guys, I'm totally fully aware of uh, that's, that's my um, mascot, but... The Trail of Tears... It's super fucked up, but... It's something we were taught in school a lot. Like, the... I feel like our schools did spend a lot of time on Oklahoma history and on the Trail of Tears, and I really appreciate the fact that they didn't try to hide the horrors of what happened. It's one of those that I think, you know, because we learned of it as the genocide that it was. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a hidden thing, and I feel like a lot of people outside of Oklahoma or outside of areas that teach it, it's not looked at in the same way. It's more like, I guess, kidded down, like kid isn't child, where it's like, oh, and then they moved here, and it's like, (laughs) but no, we were, I mean, we learned, I have very specific memories of like early elementary school, like first and second grade learning about like and 90 percent of the native americans on this died and they were forced to move being like holy shit i am six yeah i know but i i really appreciate that because a lot of things i feel like take the the civil war for example i feel like it wasn't until later in high school when like the real gravity and stuff we learned about yeah it was sugar-coated in younger years sugar-coated is the word i was trying to yeah. think of kitted down <laughs> i.e sugar-coated kitted down um well and honestly the land run is something that still fascinates me like the idea that you could just line people up and be like run when we blow the whistle it goes stake your territory like go 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 like literally if owning land could only be that simple. Do you remember in third grade when we did a mock land run? Oh yeah, I loved it. My team's like little covered wagon was phenomenal. 
my team. So for those of y'all that aren't aware, uh, in Oklahoma, in third grade, w- across the board in third grade, weirdly, in like Oklahoma Day, like we went out to a field, all these third graders, we dressed up in like pioneer clothing mm-hmm. with our fake wagons, covered wagons. Mine was cool as shit. It was my Red Rider wagon with a cardboard little cover with some lace that was hot glued to mm-hmm. it. And you, they'd blow a whistle and you sprint and you get your area. And then you like have sandwiches and you spend the day learning about Oklahoma history. Which honestly is to this day one of the most interactive learning experiences I ever had in school. Where it was like, let's just show these kids what this was like, obviously in an elementary fashion, but to, because something like the land run, when you're teaching a third grader, I feel like you have to give them this experiment to make that connection of what it really meant, where it was like, you're staking your territory. Like, this is my, my spot, not yours. You own that one next to me. This one's mine. You get off my land, but in a third grader's voice. <laughs> so, yes, if um you have never heard of The Land Run, definitely look it up. It's really interesting. And I brought up the Sooners, and I want to explain that a little bit. There was a group of people who the night before actually went out and staked their territory early. So they're called the Sooners. And uh, the University of Oklahoma, where I went to school, Boomer, the that's you say where okay, you went sorry. I also went <laughs> where there. We, we both like, went to that's school. That's also what's on my bachelor's. Truth, that's where we went to school. That's what that's based off of. We're the Sooners. Yay! And our physical mascot is a wagon. It is. It's a schooner. I'm learning as I get older and meet more people from more universities that I used to think that OU's mascot and stuff was weird. Honestly, it's not. Like, University of Tennessee is the volunteers. <laughs> what? <laughs> Willing and ready Go to do your thing. Well, it's okay. NYU is the violets. I'm like, that's a flower. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But let's get back to uh, the Bloody Benders and this horrific tale and away from uh, the horrific history. This is all just horror. Yeah. Horror for the beginning of October. Okay. In October 1870, there were five families who decided to take advantage of this opportunity to move out and stake out the land in this area of the Osage. And they settled around seven miles from where the city of Cherryval, or Cherryval, not sure how to pronounce it, it's in Kansas, would be established. And one of these families was the Benders. At first, the Benders seemed like your very normal family, normal family from Europe. Um, John Bender Sr. and his family settled near the Great Osage Trail, which was later known as the Santa Fe Trail, in which a lot of travelers passed on their way to the West. So John Bender Sr. was often called Pa, and he made a claim for 160 acres in what is now known as Labet County. Um, That's a lot of acres, by the way, 160. And his son, John, who was sometimes called Thomas, couldn't tell you why. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He claimed a similar plot that was right next to Paw's land. The Benders also included Elvira, who was called Ma. Um, I love her. I know, right? But if you're thinking of like Elvira the witch, she's kind of like that. With the boobs? Yeah, absolutely. Like the ride, where it's like the indoor roller coaster, and it's like... 
Anyway, okay. So for those of y'all that don't understand the <laughs> reference, um, Brittany and I used to go to Six Flags as children because it's in Dallas. And there was this ride that wasn't actually a ride. It's a movie theater <laughs> that had seats that like jiggled you. They did. And you watched a, it wasn't even like 3D. But you watched a movie of <laughs> Vira, and you were on a fake roller coaster. But it was so fun. And she just, like, jiggled her boobs at you and was like, I'm a spooky witch. Be on this fake roller coaster. And the line was always so long. But honestly... And yet we always were like, yes! The old Vira boob ride! But also, it was inside with AC, so there you go. Honestly, fair. <laughs> That's why the parents wanted to do it. <laughs> They were like, I will let my child see some breasts for some AC. <laughs> Honestly, the the modern day Louisiana purchase. Okay, so Elvira was Ma, and they had a daughter named Kate. So Fair. Ma and Pa reportedly mostly spoke German, and the younger Benders, John and Kate, spoke fluent English. Eventually, John Bender Sr., Pa, turned the house into an inn, and this was to give the weary travelers who were on the Santa Fe Trail, then known as the Osage Trail, a place to rest, a place to go, and just have a night. But for many of these travelers, the Bender's home would be their final resting place. Oh, that's spooky as fuck. Did you know, however, on a non-spooky note, that German was almost the official language of the United States? It lost by, like, three votes or some very insignificant vote in, like, the the House and Senate and stuff. Not, like, three people votes, but German was almost the official language. When? I mean, I I think, like, the late 1700s. That's crazy! Yeah. We could have been sitting here being like, Kannst du mich mal Katze vertönen? If I wanted you to feed my cat. I don't know. That's, like, one of the only German phrases That was actually German? Yes. No, I just made some sounds. I didn't. No, I like, don't know uh, German. I didn't know. Yeah, it's Konstumich meine Katze vertöne für mich. I think that's how you properly say, can you feed my cat? German listeners, please correct Tyler if he's wrong. See. Si. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's actually really cool. I didn't know that. But yes, not cool that people like spent their last night in this creepy cabin on the side yeah. of the trail. So, while the family originally seemed pretty normal, there were, however, some early indications that the Benders were a little strange. The community that they settled in was founded by a group of spiritualists who believed in some pretty unorthodox things. Uh, Spiritualism taught that the spirits of the dead continue to live on after death, and so the spiritualists in the community often practiced seances to contact these ghosts. And... Kate Bender, the daughter, she quickly gained a reputation as a psychic and healer who could talk to the dead. Even in a community of spiritualists, her sermons on the value of free love were considered a little odd. So this is someone in a community of people who at the time are not very accepted. They think she's a little off. What's crazy to me is, granted, I don't know what she necessarily means by free love, but they're like, oh yeah, we chit-chat with the dead all day, we have the seances, like, we've got Long Island Medium hanging out here in Salina, Kansas, but whoa, free love? Like, come on. Give it another hundred years, honey. It's not the 1970s. Honestly, I'm like, I want to feel for Kate, but I don't, and you'll understand why. She's kind of not so good. So, John, 
the son he had the tendency to laugh very aimlessly, which led Mindy to think that he might be mentally ill because he would just randomly just burst out in laughter. Okay. So Kate was the most social member of the Bender family, which made her the perfect face for the family in. She was also reportedly very attractive and outgoing, and so she drew customers to the inn with her looks, but also her psychic and healing abilities. Hey, boys, you want to spend a night in the cabin? I'm going to talk to a ghost. Is essentially verbatim what happened. Or basically, she was like, psychic, I see someone coming down the trail, and I'm going to make sure to be there when they need a place to stay. Oh, I mean, or that. (laughs) Generally, it was men who traveled alone, and they would often come to the inn and stay the night. So, the inn was actually a one-bedroom cabin. That was divided by a cloth in the middle, with the family's living quarters in the back and the public inn at the front. Okay, so basically your generic Motel 6. Literally one room. Yeah. Yeah. Motel 6, Mm -hmm. got it. And travelers on the trail were welcome to come refresh themselves with a meal, um, resupply their wagons with liquor, tobacco, horse feed, gunpowder, and food. So the benders were there to, you know, help the weary traveler get whatever they needed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I stopped there on the Oregon Trail, so I don't know about that. (laughs) When a guest arrived, they would be seated at the place of honor for dinner. And um, this was facing away from this curtain that divided the room. So their back was to the curtain. Oh, I don't like that one, but... Kate would then, during dinner, um, distract this visitor with conversation, while one of the other benders would approach the curtain from the other side. They could see the victim's head outlined through the thin cloth, and one of the bender family members would grab a hammer and smash their skull. Oh, fuck. Like, through the the uh, little curtain yeah. thingy? Yeah. Oh, my or God. Or through a slit in the curtain, but something where this person did not realize someone was approaching them from behind. So, after the head would be hit with the hammer, the body would then be dropped through a trap door into the basement. And to be sure that they were dead, the victim's throat would then be slit. They've got one room, but they've got a basement? Priorities. Well, it's their throat slitting basement. Also Kansas, tornadoes. Once the body was in the basement, the bloody benders, as they would later be known, would strip it of any clothes and valuables, and then they would take it out and bury it in a mass grave. Money was definitely a part of why the benders were killing people, but many of their victims were pretty poor. They were travelers just trying to go west, and this suggests that they just really liked killing. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine... Anyone traveling alone into the West to find whatever. like, And also the kind of person who, when traveling alone, is going to stop to stay at this one room, run down shack on the outskirts, a new one. They're not going to have a ton of money. Going, yeah, they're not going to have a ton of money. So, I, yeah, they must have loved yeah. killing. Well, and at the beginning, the disappearances were written off because, again, people were traveling out West. And so... Who knows what could happen along that journey? You disappear, and that, unfortunately, is kind of normal. I imagine lots of people, coyotes, exposure, dehydration. Exactly. However, after people continued 
disappearing after visiting the Bender's home, the surrounding communities started to grow a little bit suspicious. A man named George Launcher and his daughter were unfortunately among the unlucky visitors to the Bender Inn in 1872. After they went missing in the area, their friend, Dr. William York, he decided to come to the area to ask if anyone had seen them, and then he himself went missing. So, yeah, that's aka the Bender Skeldom. Dr. York, however, had two very powerful brothers who were determined to find out what happened to him. Colonel Edward York and Kansas Senator Alexander York. Yeah, don't kill a senator's you brother literally, if you're trying to, like, keep it on the DL. They fucked with the wrong man. So, Colonel York came to the Bender's Inn asking for his brother. The Benders told him that his brother had probably been killed by the Native Americans in the area, but York decided to keep looking, and his investigation uncovered several people who claimed that the Benders had threatened to kill them. So... He knew that the benders in this community were a bit threatening. And while he was there, the locals ended up having a meeting and agreed to open up their homes for searches to find Dr. York and to find some of these other missing people. As the investigation began to close in on the benders, Kate had an idea. She volunteered that she would consult the spirits if they gave her some time to find the whereabouts of the victims. So she needed some space. You know, she had to be alone so she could make this connection. She needed some time because she was talking to the spirits. She wanted to find these victims. Eventually, one of the Bender's neighbors noticed that the farm animals were starving. And the neighbor kind of wandered over to the property. When York returned to the inn for the Benders, like, to confront them, he found that it was completely deserted. They were gone. Oh. Oh, that's why the animals were starving, because they were like, deuces. They left. The animals had no food. They were starving. That's fucked up. So. I mean, they've done a lot of fucked up things, but that's just another little extra. I know. It's like fucked up sprinkles on a real fucked up cupcake. Exactly. So, Colonel York's party then searched the building for any sign of what happened. Like, they're gone, so they're going to look around. And that's when they discovered the trapdoor to the basement. The trapdoor was located behind the curtain in the vendor's private quarters, and it led to this very foul-smelling cellar, which was drenched in blood. There was blood everywhere. Uh. I mean, this is where their victims' throats were slit. So blood was all over the place. The home supposedly just smelled like death. Did none of these travelers get there and be like, oh, what a nice place to stay. Oh my god, your house smells like shit. I'm gonna go. Right? I would think that people would walk in and be like, oh, oh god. Um, But at the same time, if it was the only place to stay, you kind of just like grin and bear it. I guess that's true. I mean, a gross roof is still a roof over your head. Exactly. Well, neighbors had noticed that the benders were often plowing their garden and the fields, but the reality was they were burying bodies. So, working throughout the night, volunteers started to unearth York's body. So, Colonel York's brother, William York, and the back of his head had been smashed and his throat was slit. Then, soon they found more bodies with very similar injuries. One of the horrifying things about this, and don't ask me why I know this, because I don't know, um, but 
it's very similar to how they used to slaughter pigs was smash their head in and cut their throat. I know. There's and a movie or something that has that in it. They do that in the book Carrie <gasps> by Stephen oh King. Oh my god, that's what I'm thinking of. Is that what yes, you're thinking? Okay. That's it. As soon as but you I said that, I was they... thinking of the movie with Sissy Spacek and when, yep, that's what they do to the pig to get the blood. Yeah. Oh god. Here, piggy, piggy. But um, but that's that's how um, pigs used to be slaughtered, and that I don't know. To me, just like that extra detail of it, that extra piece of dehumanizing their victims yeah. is so fucked up. Well, and like I said, they weren't even doing this for money. They just did it to kill people. They just did it because they were like, "This is cool. This is this is, this fun. is fun. We're a family together. We've got this home. Let's turn it into an inn and let's start killing people." Some families go to the park together, some families go to the zoo, we murder people. It's just really messed up. Well, these victims that were being found, nearly all of them were men who appeared to have been hit in the head and had their throats cut. However, searchers discovered a grave containing a young girl who had been buried with the body of her father, and this was the daughter of George Launcher. Oh. His body had been thrown on top of her. The girl didn't appear to have any obvious injuries except for a broken arm. So this led some people to conclude that she may have been buried alive and covered with the corpse of her dead father. Oh my. Oh, fuck no. So. And she was like a little girl. She was a little girl. That's just, that's fucked up. It really is. And accounts differ about the number of bodies excavated from the site, but totals hover around about a dozen. But in all, the vendors may have committed as many as 21 murders. However, all of those murders probably only got them about a few thousand dollars and some extra livestock from people who were bringing their animals with them. So again, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the livestock. No, it was about the murder. One man who was named Mr. Winsel, he heard about the discovery and the killing theory um, and he remembered a time when he had been at the inn and he declined to sit in the designated spot near the curtain. So like, that was like the honored spot. And he was like, no, 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 I, you sit there. Or like, Pa, like, that's for you. And his decision made Ma so angry. She became abusive towards him. And when he saw like the male benders so pa and john emerged from behind the cloth like the curtain he and his companion that he was there with they decided to leave and then another traveler william pinkering had an almost identical story so these were two people who as we know now narrowly escaped death yeah damn this decision to just be like oh no 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 please you sit saved their lives apparently um even though ma got like irate After all of these bodies were found, a manhunt was immediately launched to find the benders, and there was actually a $2,000 reward for finding them. Oh, look, more money than they got from murdering all these people. The crimes created a sensation in the newspapers, and of course it drew journalists and curiosity seekers from all over the country. And if you think about it in this time, people had to travel far, so they had to be really fucking curious. I know, and you had to like, you know, telegraph someone like, dee, 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 dee. creepy murder hotel, dee, 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 dee. 
and you know, got the Boston Globe being like, "Oh shit!" Well, uh, Mary, you go take like a seven-week trip there. Honestly, I feel like this is evidence for the fact that you know we talk about how true crime is so quote unquote popular right now, and everyone's like quote unquote into it. Um. The Bloody Benders were the first serial killer family in America, and people were flocking to where they were. So, obviously, the point I'm making is, this is a fascination that we as humans just have. Oh yeah, I promise you, if microphones and Podbean had been around then, you would have had, like, (laughs) Georgia and Karen would have been there. And it's just... It's so crazy to look back so far. And again, I almost feel with every case we cover, there are people that are fascinated. And so when we talk about how true crime is like having its like moment, I'm like, literally, no, the moment's always been there. It's just now being recognized as not weird. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in like my lifetime, true crime has gone from, you know, when I was like a kid kid, it was more... Things like uh, documentaries and like made for TV movies and shows on Lifetime and Oxygen. And then it became more stuff on like Discovery Channel and History Channel. And, you know, now it's like an investigation discovery and uh, streaming platforms and podcasts. Like it's it's always been. A well, thing. And that's the thing, like regardless of how it's been portrayed in the media and um, entertainment platforms. It has always been a fascination of the human mind. Well, shit. I mean, you go back further. Look at mystery novels. Look at Agatha Christie. That is the same kind of subject matter that the the true crime fans of today that we are into and that we're searching for is the mystery and murder novels of the 50s and beyond. We love the macabre. Come on. Also, Agatha Christie, like... She's a bad bitch. Awesome work. So, get this. The house, you know, the Bender's home where all these murders took place, was eventually disassembled and carried away piece by piece by souvenir seekers. They ended up taking the entire home. So, just to drill in that fact of uh, true crime has always been a fascination of the human race, they took pieces of the home like literally that's fucking it weird. is to me too but enough people had to want to do it for it to demolish the entire home and so like there are literally people that are like this shingle was the home of the benders you know what happened there let me tell you the story oh this piece of wood is from the left side of the house of the benders let me tell you the story yeah that's fucking weird they're like souvenirs from crime scenes personally i draw the line that That makes me very uncomfortable because that makes it, that to me takes it from a place of like uh, symbolizing and memorializing for the victims to uh, just like, it it turns it into just like an artifact of the macabre. It does. You know, like I would not want to have a brick from John Wayne Gacy's No, and there's like a phrase for it. It's like murderbilia. And it's different items, and especially, oh god, this is the one that sticks out to me, because it just wrenches my stomach, like the artwork of John Wayne Gacy, and like these serial killers who create art while in prison, and people 
get a hold of that and try to sell it as murderabilia and or like reproductions of it and it's just so sick yeah that to, to me there is a difference between hearing the story from a podcast or a documentary or reading a book or i don't know that or or like having merch from your favorite true crime of whatever course. maybe it's a t-shirt that has a saying that's that a serial killer said or something yeah okay yeah that's one yes. thing actual pieces and artifacts from these crimes as like souvenirs because like something in a museum that you go to that's one thing you know look at looking at it for like its significance things cool but as like souvenirs and as like braggadocious objects that really turns me off. Me too. And, like, as as y'all know, we obviously love true crime or we wouldn't be doing this. But when it comes to... Oh, absolutely. When it comes to wanting a piece of that crime to display or have in a drawer or whatever, that's just, to me, is, is too much. Yeah. So, like I said, the benders had completely disappeared. Their wagon was found shortly after they left, about a few miles away from their home, but they weren't in it. It was just an empty wagon. Some people thought that maybe they had been killed by vigilantes, and others thought they left the country. A railroad employee later testified that he saw the family heading to Humboldt, Kansas, um, but then some accounts placed Kate and John in Texas or maybe New Mexico and Ma and Pa in St. Louis. And unfortunately, in spite of numerous sightings over the years, no one ever discovered where they'd gone. Oh, that's creepy as shit. Um, trust me, it gets creepier. Oh. I know you don't know how, but it's possible. Um, And that's because further investigation revealed that the family wasn't even really the Benders. John and Kate were possibly husband and wife, not siblings. And according to some legends, the couple had at least one child, but shortly after the baby was born, Kate and John Jr. murdered the infant with the blow to the head. Kate was uh, actually one of the daughters from one of Ma's previous marriages, and her name when she was born was Eliza Griffith. John Jr. was born as John Gebhardt. Again, not sibling, husband. Pa was born as John Flinkinger, and Ma was born as Almira Mark. Well, that is, she didn't try too hard with her name. Almira, Elvira, like, mm, she didn't think too hard. She was, someone asked her, what's your name? And she went, um, Almira is my name. That is who I am, thank you for welcoming me to the Kansas. Except that her last name was completely different. But, like, the fact is... She had more time to think of that. None of them were who they said they were. And the reality is, maybe none of them were really family. Like, they were not the Benders. So, it is just this group of rando murderers that come together and is like, Hey, want to open a weird-ass Motel 6 and kill people? And they're like, honestly, love American Horror Story Hotel. So into it. Well, I mean, not exactly. Like, I think Ma and Pa were actually married, and that Kate was Ma's daughter, but John was her husband. But they just, they weren't using their real names. I don't like it. I don't like it either. And, um... 
apparently Ma was potentially also a black widow. Uh, she had been married several times before she married Pa, but each of her husbands mysteriously had died from head wounds. Every single one of them. Oh, how mysterious and must not be connected in exactly. any way. The Bloody Benders quickly pass into legend as America's first serial killer family, and their story remains a ghastly part of the Kansas folklore even to this day, which, I mean, I get it. Like, my God, what a story to have. I mean, not yeah. they could want it, but they've got it. And there also is the possibility that the Benders left that area and changed their names again, and just killed more. They were obviously good at what they did. Yeah. Today, nothing remains to indicate the exact location where the Bender House stood, and there is a historical marker at a nearby rest area, but nothing to mark where the house actually was. See, and that's the kind of thing, going back to our murderbilia conversation earlier, I would love to go on a road trip, if I was on a road trip, see that marker. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to... Steal the marker? Freaking be like, ooh, I'm gonna take the marker. I'm gonna take a break from the hounds. There could be blood on here. No, it's not okay. Allegedly, the graves that the benders dug for their victims were pretty deep. So there's a likelihood that there are some remains of people that were killed that have never been found and are still on the land. As a result of everything that happened, the site where the cabin used to sit has been dubbed Hell's Acre, and it's today a point of interest for tourists who want to see where the benders buried the bodies, and like we've been talking about, that's... I would go visit it. I'm not I'm not going to yeah. take dirt off the land. I'm not going to dig. I'm not going to try to find those bodies that maybe still are there, but... People definitely still go out to this area to to hear about the folklore and, and what happened. I wonder how long it takes for, um, like, a human body, for the bones to fully decompose if buried, like, straight in soil. Because, you know, you can look at, like, ancient tombs and stuff where it's more, like, properly or, like, hermetically sealed that are still around for thousands of years. But I wonder if someone just straight up buried in the ground how long it takes for bone to, to like, decompose completely. Me too. I, I really don't know. That'd be a good thing to look up because I honestly have no idea, I mean, how much it, how much time it would take to decompose every single particle because I'm sure there are some bones in the body. Like, as we know, some bones are thicker, some are thinner, so... Over time, some would go away and some would still be there. So for there to be completely no remains, I'm really not sure. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I would imagine the environment would have a lot to do with it. Of course, of course. But yeah, so that is the case of the Bloody Benders. Well, that case was super fucked up. Yeah, literally, when it's multiple people who come together to kill... It creeps me out so much. Like, it's so horrifying because... Yeah, it's this little, like, murder It is, and not that I can understand one person wanting to murder, but a group of people coming together and making the conscious decision to murder together really scares me. Also, like, just how how do you broach that conversation? Are you at dinner and you're like, you know... 
I don't know, cutting up the roast, and you're like, God, this guy at work, I could kill him, right? And, like, look at people's reactions. I really don't know. I don't know how you begin to broach the subject with one other person, let alone your whole family. All right, well, let's hop into postmortem. Let's do it. So, I think that this episode breaks the streak. Really? I'm gonna go ahead and say I think your case was the more intense. I think it's a close one. I really do. But I think just because of the aspects of your case, the number of victims, the just the fucking creepiness factor of it, and that they just disappeared. Right. I mean, in my case, we don't know, know who did it. We kind of know. And it was kind of known. Granted, they both died without ever having to face justice. But in your case, the family just disappeared. They just vanished. Well, and what's so creepy is we don't know where they went, if they continued to murder, if they even stayed together, and the fact that they weren't even really the benders. Like, that's well creepy. Exactly. And there is no part of me that thinks this group of people murder 21 people and then get to how they feel like is close enough to getting caught that they bounce and are like, you know what? That was a sign. We're going to no. stop and we're going to be good. No, they fucking murdered everywhere. They somewhere else. They bounce. Maybe they separated. Maybe they stayed together. Maybe there is a creepy hotel just down the road in Nebraska that people don't know about or talk about. That became Murder Hotel Part 2. That became a fucking day's in of murder. Well, another thing that's crazy is that, you know, people who were traveling west, they're exhausted and they visit this inn just to get some rest. And they get killed. I mean, it's it's people who are looking for a better life. Yes. It's, it's people just working towards that goal of happiness and and more that we're all striving towards just fucking straight up murder yeah so no i think while my case is so fucked up i mean it has the corruption it has the brutality i think you brought the more intense well and yeah i i think it's bound in time for it to be my turn to win but your case was really messed up i the Keddy Every cabins time I hear it, murders. it just, there are new parts of it that just stick with me, you know? And yeah. and it, it's yeah. hard. It's so fucked yes. up. Yes. So, um, yeah, this was definitely super cray cray. Agreed. And next episode, I've, I've had not a long enough break at this point, but I'll pick the next yes, topic. Yes, it's finally your turn. And, but... Thank y'all so much for tuning in, for listening to us. Um, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. Hope y'all loved it. If you did, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love to read y'all's reviews, hear what y'all think, see y'all's five stars. But yeah. Yes. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Check us out. Check out our content. We share all of the wines that we do on every episode. We share some fun stuff, photos of us, you know. And also, shoot us a message. If you have any questions, give us um, a shout out on Facebook Messenger, 
Instagram DM or send us an email at bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up. We love y'all. But with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.